morning, everybody. Let me take a moment and wish you a happy Mother's Day as well. You know, it, it's, uh, it's really worth it. All of the hard work. All of those uh, late nights or early mornings. All of those moments when uh, you experience difficulty with your children. And nobody can do what mothers can do. And so I just want to encourage you, a very happy Mother's Day to you. We honor you today. Uh, we're thankful for you. And we want to encourage you. And by way of encouragement, you know, what better to do than to make fun of ourselves uh, to encourage you moms? And so the Brits are particularly good at this. And some British newspapers have recently published a few surveys that might be interesting to you on Mother's Day. According to one survey, 40% of moms have received unwanted Mother's Day gifts. 40%. Most of them are too polite to complain about it. But here's a partial list of the 30 worst Mother's Day gifts that you can give to your mother. These are actually received gifts as reported by moms. Number one, deodorant. (coughs) A fire extinguisher. Cleaning supplies. A stick of French bread, salad dressing, popcorn, an ant farm. This one's really bad. Hair dye. Not not a good Mother's Day gift. The list is rounded out by a screwdriver, a toilet roll, calculator, and my personal favorite, car parts. Another British newspaper ran an article entitled The 20 Awful Mother's Day Cards That You Absolutely Should Not Buy. And just in case you haven't given your card to your mother yet, I wanted to read a couple of them for you so you had a chance to adjust if your card was on the list. Here's just a couple. One of them says, Mom, thanks for always checking up on me. With a picture of a cell phone with multiple unanswered or canceled calls. One of them says, well, I guess this Mother's Day card is late. Looks like someone wasn't raised properly. (laughs) Here's another one. It says very simply, I'm awesome, you're welcome, to the luckiest mom ever. (laughs) Not a good Mother's Day card. And how about this one, from the college student particularly, It better be, at least not from the 30-year-old living in the basement. Mom, I love you loads. Will you please do my laundry? This morning, we continue in our series in the book of Judges. And although this is not a Mother's Day sermon per se, it is important to note that really the two of the four main characters and, and the two righteous characters in this story, both are women. Women are shown to be the ones faithful to the Lord, the men much less so in our story in the book of Judges. And if you are new here today or visiting us for the very first time, you're picking up in the first third of this series in which we're looking at the people of Israel who are engaged in ongoing cycles of sin. They are taking their allotment of land that God has promised them, but they're a picture of larger humanity as they do so, with all of their struggles and with all of their successes. And God shows himself to be faithful, even though again and again and again they find themselves 
in these cycles of sin, cycles of sin that are very much similar to the cycles that we find ourselves in. And our hope and our goal is that as looking at their negative example, that this would encourage us toward a positive example of how to be faithful to the Lord. And so with that, we read today Judges chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and this is the story of Deborah and Barak. Judges chapter 4, please turn with me, page 203 of the Pew Bible. This is what it says. It says, And the people of Israel again, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashareth Hagaim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of of Abinoam from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and from the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. And when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, went up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hashareth Hagaim up to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And so Barak went from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera, and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hashareth Hagaim, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Yael went to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me and do not be afraid. 
So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks, Is anyone here? Say no. But Yael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Yael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. As the book of Judges progresses, we see dueling realities that are taking place. First, we see God, the sovereign king of the universe, who continues to act victoriously on behalf of his people. Secondly, we see a people, Israel, who continues to engage in this cycle of sin. And what we see in this section of Judges, chapters 3 and 4 and 5, is that the cycle of sin that we have been talking about for a handful of weeks now actually becomes clear. It's not just some sort of vague cycle in which the people are taking laps around again and again and again, stuck in their sinfulness. But in fact, there, there is seemingly a sequence and a progression to it. And we see it right here in this text. Look with me as the cycle becomes clear at its basic components. You see in verse 1 that again the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. First step in the cycle. Second step is found in that God judges the people from a foreign nation. They end up being oppressed by that nation and serving them. Verse 2. Verse 3, we see that the pain of oppression is so great that Israel cries out to God, rescue us, save us, get us out of this mess. And in response, we see in verse 6 that God raises up a deliverer, a judge, to rescue them. And ultimately, the fifth step of this cycle is that they are delivered and they experience a period of rest. And you see that in verses 23 and 24. But if you read through Judges, you will see this with almost all the accounts of the Judges, with Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Barak, and as you go on down the line, you'll see this cycle again and again and again. And it's important to help you understand the thrust of the book, but it's also important, or maybe even more important, because it really points us to our own sinful propensities, doesn't it? I mean, in our more judgmental moments, we look at the people around us and we say, man, I can't believe that that idiot is doing that again. I mean, I saw what happened to him last time that he engaged in that type of behavior. I saw the last cycle that he went through, and look where it took him. And I can see it already happening again. He's walking down the same path, and I know that he is going to get the same results. Sometimes when we look at the lives of those around us, 
we feel like we're watching a spiritual groundhog day. The same sins, the same results, again and again and again. And then, not less than a few days later, I sin again. And the same sin and the same results that I've been struggling with for a long time, and maybe even those sins become a pattern of sin that's unpleasing to God, step one of the cycle. And maybe, maybe God allows me to experience the consequence of those sins, step two. And the consequences of the sin, whether it's the weight of guilt or conviction upon me or the physical or practical realities of sin, become so great in my life that I cry out to God for help. Step three. And God at that time reminds me of a deliverer. Not a judge that he raises up to save me in this instance, but a deliverer that he has already sent deliver his son Jesus, who forgives and who restores solely by his grace. That's step four. And after that, you enjoy a season of renewed spiritual vitality, of reveling in the grace of God, a pursuit of him diligently again and again and again. That's step five. That's a cycle that many of us have been through. No doubt. It's like I've been through. And it, the people of Israel in this book of Judges, by way of sort of big picture observation, serve as a type of humanity, of all of us, that struggle in these types of ways. But they don't only display how we sin. They also display why we sin. And that's where we focus our attention to next, by way of sort of big picture observation. We see that this pattern emerging now in the book of Judges, that when the barrier is removed, sin begins to creep in. This is what I mean by that. Look with me at verse 1 again. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. After Ehud had died. And so there's this sense in which the judge, the leader, passes away, and immediately after he passes, there's this newfound sense of freedom. The restraint, the barrier is removed, and Israel goes back to it again. It's a reality that we see again and again throughout the book, and it points us to this fact that the judge is serving as an external restraint for them, But we all have kind of external restraints in our life, and there's a greater spiritual principle at play here. And that is that religion that must be kept in check by external restraints displays that there's not a deep-rooted reality in the life of the person. Think about that again with me. I'll say it again. Religion that is kept in check or must be kept in check by external restraints displays that there's actually not a deep-rooted reality in the life of the person. When I was a child, my brother and I loved to do the things that kids do, and one of our favorite things to drink was pop, was soda. How many of you have kids that are constantly saying, Dad, Mom, can I have a soda? 
Well, that was true in our house, and my, my mother would limit uh, the amount of soda that we could drink, and so it was a big treat for us when Saturday came, and she would allow my brother and I to have a can of Pepsi. And then came that season of life when our parents decided to leave us a home alone for the first time. Do you remember that feeling of being left home alone for the first time without a babysitter? That awkward and wonderful sense of temporary freedom that was there? I mean, some of you now have children that you're testing the waters with at the very same time and wondering what's going on in their little minds as you're leaving them home alone. It's an interesting feeling. It's a wonderful sense of freedom. And I remember watching out the window as the Buick rolled up the street and waiting just to see if they were going to turn around. And they didn't. And they left us there. And we looked at each other and we thought to ourselves, well, now what? And the first time that they left us home alone, nothing out of the ordinary really happened. But it didn't take long on the subsequent occasions to realize that there were no cameras in the house. There were no microphones recording or listening to what we were going to say. And so what would two, I don't know, 10, 11-year-olds do when they're left home alone with newfound freedom? Well, we would wait by the window. And we'd peek just over the bottom part of the windowsill as not to be seen. And we'd watch as the Buick rolled up the street and we'd count to 10, knowing that by a 10 count, clearly they're like maybe out of the neighborhood by now and not coming back. And then as soon as we did, we'd run downstairs as fast as we could. We'd throw open the closet door where there was mounds of soda. (coughs) And I would grab a Pepsi in one hand and a Mountain Dew in the other hand And five or six cans later, my brother and I sat back in a drunken Mountain Dew stupor (laughs) watching television until they got home. It's a stupid example. Remove the judge and your true colors shine. But that's not true faith. Friends, if your faithfulness to God is based solely on expectations or pressures or your surroundings, then there is clearly a lack of internal work of God in your life. Genuine saving faith in God does not simply include walking down an aisle and making a profession of faith to Jesus. Genuine saving faith to God does not simply include a tremendous story of God's rescue of you from the terrible circumstances of your life. But genuine saving faith in God points to experiencing the mercies and graces of God in a consistent daily life. So 1 John chapter 2 points to the tension. And it says in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, of course, John isn't saying and we're not saying that Christians never sin. 
And we're not saying that Christians never struggle in sin in an ongoing fashion. We're not even saying that Christians never enter into a cycle of sin. But what the scriptures do tell us is that if sin becomes an ongoing, acceptable pattern of life for you, without conviction, if you're hardened toward it, if you adopt it as just norm, when the external restraints are removed, true color shines. And when that type of sin overtakes you, then you must surely question whether or not your faith is actually genuine. Because in the life of the Christian, there is a sense in which we desperately want to follow God, even as we stumble along the way. And for the sake of our discussion today, we're reminded that it's important to consider and to pursue him at all costs. He's worth it. God is worth it despite how you feel at the time or despite the circumstances that you're experiencing. He's worth it. Those are a couple of big picture observations in the book of Judges. As we dive into the story a little bit more, we can make a couple of specific applications and and more direct themes start to emerge for us. And one of those themes is the theme of conditional obedience. Now we just read through the Through the story of chapter 4, we saw that there are four main characters in this story, right? There's Deborah, who's the prophetess. She is governing or judging Israel. She functions to the people as a mouthpiece of God to them. When she speaks his words to them, they're called to listen. We see Barak, who is the general of the army of Israel. He would be the formal judge, probably, in this story, because judges, remember, are military deliverers. And so your tradition might tell you that Deborah is the judge. (laughs) We hear that sometimes. Deborah's the prophetess. Barak's probably the judge. And we see in this story a man named Sisera. Sisera is the general of the pagan army who's called to be conquered by Israel. And then finally, this woman named Yael, who would be the one to eventually kill Sisera. And the tension in the story begins to rise in verse 6. Look at it with me. Deborah, the prophetess, is fulfilling her role. She's speaking and she's governing. She's the one in authority. And she sent, verse 6, and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam. And she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of them from the tribes of Nephtali and Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Now, there's a command. Deborah gives a command, and that command is based on a promise. The command is, go get the troops ready. The promise is, I will give them into your hand. The command is based on a promise. But listen to what Barak says to her. He says, if you will go with me, verse 8, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She agrees to go with him, but claims that his glory will be given to a woman. If 
you go with me, I will go. We call this conditional obedience. God, I will obey, but only if the conditions meet my pleasure. And we don't know that much about Barak, really. There's a reason why we don't know that much about him. Because of his actions, he becomes a very minor figure in biblical history. But we don't understand the reason why he hesitates to obey God. I mean, after all, the command had a promise attached. And the promise was, I will deliver you. (laughs) I will allow you to conquer this king and his people, even though they had 900 chariots. I mean, maybe the circumstances didn't look quite right to him, that 900 chariots was, was too many. Perhaps he was just afraid. I mean, we see later in verse 14, on the eve of battle, they're all gathered near the edge of the battlefield, and Deborah again has to give him just kind of a little swift kick in the trousers and say, get up and go, hasn't God delivered him into your hand? Perhaps he was denying the authority of the prophetess. But I think what's happening here, most likely, is that Deborah, as the prophetess of God, the one whose voice represented the voice of God himself, Barak, in saying, you need to come with me, is essentially saying, I want to see that God is on the battlefield with me. The words are just not enough. He hesitates on the command because he doesn't trust the promise. I wonder if you have ever put conditions on God. You desire to follow him. You want him to teach you. You want him to use you. You want him to guide you. You might even have this sort of healthy desire to be a hero of the faith, maybe within your family, to have a legacy that truly lasts, that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren would see you and say, that's a person I want to be like because they were faithful to God. But you need to know that if you will only obey God on your own terms, if you put upper limits to the level by which you are willing to obey God, then God will not use you to your maximum capacity, nor will he bless you to his maximum desire. How do you do this today? How do do we put conditions on God? I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about the nature of your relationships and actions with people. So often, almost all of our relationships have conditions attached to it, or qualifications, We interact with each other based on these nuanced qualifications. And therefore, it's surely tempting to do the same with God, isn't it? Here are some common ways we do this. I wonder if any of them ring true for you. God, if you make my parent honorable, then I will honor them. Even on Mother's Day. God, if you give me a child then I will consistently worship you in my local church so that I can raise them in the Lord. But if you do not, then I will not. God, if you give me a good sex life with my spouse, then I will be faithful sexually. God, if you allow me to make more money, then I will tithe consistently. 
God, if you fix my husband, then I will respect him. God, if you allow me to still do the things that I love to do, my hobbies, if you allow me to do those things, then I will serve you. But if I have to choose, God, if you preserve my reputation, then I will be willing to tell people about Jesus. Do any of those ring true to you? Because just as Barak didn't take God's direct promise of victory seriously and respond in obedience, so too do our conditions reflect that we struggle to take God's commands seriously and his promises seriously as well. In fact, you might even say it this way as one theologian does. Every command of God is built upon a promise of God. And every divine call to action or obedience is at the same time a divine summons to trust in God's promises by faith. The promises of God are commands in disguise and vice versa. God commands what he commands because he promises. Disbelief always shows up as an act of disobedience. Since every promise carries with it a command every time we disobey God, it is because we're not trusting in the promises. And so here we see a negative example. Barak does not trust the promises and therefore he's hesitant to obey the command. And so what do we learn from that? Conversely, we learn that we can trust God's commands because we can trust his promises. You can obey the commands of God in scripture because the promises that God gives you will come to pass. And this is an ongoing struggle for so many of us because just like Barak, we want to see that God is present as we pursue his commands, don't we? It's difficult to trust that his word is enough. Well, the story goes on. And we, and we see that God achieves victory despite the conditions. Barak does go to battle. Deborah goes with him. It says that the Lord routs the enemy and all of the chariots and all of the people fell by the edge of the sword of Barak. But Sisera, the general, ran away on foot. And as he runs, he runs toward this land off the battlefield and Haber and his wife, Yael, the Kenites, are living there. Now, these people are not examples to follow per se. I mean, they're living in disobedience outside of God's promise, making peace with the foreign king. And yet, Yael coaxes him into the tent. And as she does, we see a famous twist of irony. God chooses not to use Barak, the mighty warrior. Instead, he uses Yael, the Kenite woman, he was strong and mighty, she was weak and lowly. Barak uses a sword, Yael uses a tent peg. He pursues his enemy intensely and actively, and she just sits there and waits for the enemy to come to her. And when she has her moment, she strikes him and she kills him. The prophecy of Deborah comes true. The glory of the battle does not go to the warrior because of his conditions. It goes to the woman instead. And we'll talk more about that next week. But we're reminded here that God will accomplish his purposes despite 
his people. (laughs) Now, he certainly desires to accomplish his purposes in concert with his people. God certainly shows affection and favor to those who are obedient, those who are faithful, those who are courageous, those who will follow him at all costs. But even if his people put conditions on him, he's still going to accomplish his purposes. And even if his people are completely disobedient to him, he still is going to accomplish his purposes. The sovereign king of the universe will never be thwarted. And that reminds us that we can trust his commands. Why? Because we can trust his promises. We can trust God's commands because we can trust his promises. And so I want to conclude this morning with just considering that idea of trust a little bit more. Some of us are struggling with sin in our lives and and our need to be saved from that sin. Our guilt overwhelms us. We feel like there's nothing we can do to gain the favor of God. And the call for you, if you're in that place, is to trust. To trust that God has provided for you in the person of Jesus and that by his grace he will indeed forgive you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not by works, lest any person should boast. Some of us struggle with the notion that we continue to sin even though we shouldn't. We know, we've tasted, we've seen that the Lord is good. We've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. We've had seasons of our life of spiritual flourishing. And yet, ours is the struggle of repetition, the cycle, the need for a deliverer to pull us out of these sins that we keep finding ourselves in, that we keep reverting back to, even though we don't want to. And yet we see the compassion of God who is faithful to to continue to forgive even though we continue to go through these cycles. And so he calls us really to preach the gospel to ourselves yet again, remembering that he is patient and he's kind and he's not wanting any to perish in their sins, but he desires all to be saved. To remember that we can confess our sins and this God who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins again. And again, and again. No, we should never take that forgiveness for granted. And yet when we fall and stumble again, there is a safe place that we can go back to. If you are in the cycle of sin, the safest place you can go back to is to the Lord, the judge, but the deliverer himself. Running away will only further perpetuate the cycle. We can trust God's commands because we can trust his promises. Some of us are still struggling to trust God's commands in his word as it relates to our daily life. We want to place conditions on our obedience. But conditional trust does not match the nature of the promises of God, nor does it match the character of the one who gives those promises. Andrew Murray once wrote, the true pupil, say of some great musician or painter, yields his master a wholehearted and unhesitating submission. 
in practicing his scales or mixing his colors, in the slow and patient study of the elements of his art, he knows that it is wisdom simply and fully to obey. It is this wholehearted surrender to his guidance, this implicit submission to his authority, which Christ asks. We come to him asking him to teach us the law of obeying God, and he's, as he did. And the only way of learning to do such a thing is to do it. The only way of learning obedience from Christ is to give up your will to him and to make the doing of his will the one desire and delight of your heart. Friends, we can trust God's commands because we can trust his promises. May that word ring true to us when we are at the crossroads in the moment of temptation. That we see that disobedience is actually disbelief of the promises of God. May it ring true to us as we go through the monotony of life trying to figure out our way forward that this God is worthy of trusting that his promises will come true and therefore I can be faithful in the big things and the little things. May it ring true that word that we can trust his commands because we can trust his promises at the moment of apprehension. When we stand on the eve of battle, whatever it might be, and we trust that he will indeed provide and deliver. May that be said of us. May God help us as we do. Let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father, you are a perfect and mighty God and you're generous and you're consistent and you're kind and you are trustworthy. And in our short-sightedness, we so often want visual reminder as Barak did. In our short-sightedness, we so often desire to see that you are on the battlefield. <laughs> in our short-sightedness, we forget that you are the Lord who sees and knows all even when we can't perceive you to be present. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to trust, that you would create in your people an ever, an ongoing sense of reliance for the forgiveness of our sins and an ever, an ongoing reliance on you for the ins and outs of daily life. Help us to trust you even more robustly, even more profoundly than we do today. We ask this for the sake of your glory and thanksgiving to your son. Amen.